Zero, The End of Money. Written and narrated by D.W. Draffin. Chapter 37 Five people is all it took. One in Belgium, one in Hong Kong, one in New Jersey, and, like, just a couple others. That's so wild. Alan sat in his bed, the blankets knotted under his knees, his best friend's voice in his earbuds. As Gordito Ng 07, he voice-chatted with Effulgent Gap 23, as he had since he was 15 years old, while he worked on his laptop. They'd never met in real life, but at this point knew more about each other than anyone, including their families. So they got thousands of people all over the world to use those ATM cards at the same time? How does that work? As far as Alan knew, they were the only ones still playing a particular 10-year-old Indonesian knockoff of the mech anime classic Assault Suit Lanos on their phones. As long as the voice chat still sent voice packets over whatever forgotten relic of a data network, Alan could keep in touch with Effulgent Gap 23. Let's see, here's the original post. A squeal of delight interrupted his reading. Oh my god! Listen, Gordito, from the comments, two in custody, two missing. The guy in New Jersey was an insider. He took out the whole network hub, servicing the financial centers in New York, and then suicided with a car bomb in the garage. Sick. This is the hack to end all hacks. These bitches are serious. So what? Those five, like, took down the network defenses and let in the ATM card's malicious code somehow? Yeah, it's a really sophisticated attack. My brother says the virus only fully assembled once it was behind all their firewalls. Then what did it do? Aren't most of these, like, DDoS attacks? Not this one. It doesn't care about interrupting traffic. It's in there to break the system forever. It infected all the databases, all of them, in a few hours. And then anything that was identifiable as financial assets, it just ate all the records are gone. Who owns what and how much? Everywhere. Payrolls and rental agreements and car loans. I mean, most people probably have some paper backups or something, but who knows if they're current and if they're even legal. I mean, think about it, Gore. Nobody knows who owns what anymore. It's all gone. Just gone. Are you serious? What about the stock market? As he spoke, Alan automatically debugged another column of HTML. Not his code, never his own. But this project was especially egregious. Errors everywhere. It would probably take all day. And then his boss would bitch again about his low unit numbers. Who knows? I can't access any news sites or anything. Can you? This was new territory in their friendship. They had never shared details of their lives, like where they lived. That would somehow break the spell. Alan knew from context clues that Effulgent Gap 23 didn't live in the U.S., maybe not even the Americas. But to Alan's ear, he couldn't hear an accent. His best guess had always been that his friend was a military brat. Let me try again. Alan clicked on the browser's navigation bar and directed it to CNN. The web page never came up. When he went back to the server hosting his job units, he couldn't access it either. Uh-oh. You know how people have been saying the networks keep going down today? Well, mine just did. Oh, shit. Now I can't get back to my work. 
Yeah, everything's pretty much gone dark here, too. Wow. Crazy. Now what am I supposed to do? Why can we still talk, Gap? I have no idea. I mean, maybe think about it like this. The hack isn't like breaking equipment or networks or anything. It's just making it so suddenly nobody's paying for them. I bet, like, some crucial cell phone company account came due a few hours ago, and when they didn't get payment, it just, like, shut off. And then other services followed suit. Cascade. Yeah, right. But there's no money to be made hosting a virtual server for a game that nobody's played in seven years, so it's just some guy somewhere with a server in his closet doing it for the love. And these data packets are so old and tiny. I mean, I don't know. I don't either. Wow. I mean, what does this mean, though? How are we going to pay for gas and food and stuff? I do not know, Gordito Wing 07. I do not know. Chapter 36 Alan walked up San Jose Avenue toward Balboa Park. Knots of people congregated on the lawns there, speaking in urgent Spanish and Tagalog and Cantonese. It didn't look like any of them had any answers or plans that made any sense. They were all just venting. Alan stayed on the sidewalk, headed north toward the corner stores. The first one was closed and its windows boarded, as it sometimes was during protests and riots. Alan walked to the next. It, too, was closed. Damn! They also made his pizza. Now what was he going to do? The J. Church Muni train hadn't rolled up or down the rail since he'd been out here. Alan retraced his steps to the Balboa BART station. The lights were on. A janitor still worked, sweeping the floors within. But there was no ticket agent in the glass booth and no sound of trains coming or going. Spooky. Alan didn't like walking. It hurt his feet and knees after a few blocks. Now how was he supposed to get back to his apartment if he needed? It was all the way over by Potrero Hill. Not that he'd leave Leany and Marta for any reason, but suddenly he felt trapped here. Sirens wailed in the distance. At least somebody was still doing their job. What if Marta fell ill again? Would an ambulance come get her? Would there be any doctors or nurses in the hospitals? Alan's sigh turned into a groan as his claustrophobia increased. Wait, there are a million people here, all jammed together in an eight-by-eight-mile square. What is everybody going to do? Chapter 35 A papery touch rested on Jean's forearm. Young man! Jean gave a forced half-smile to Jeanette. Her roomy eyes blinked happily at him. The girls swore me to secrecy, but I got you just a little something for your birthday anyway. We love you. She cupped his cheek in her trembling hand and dropped a stained envelope on his lap, then clasped her hands and waited for him to read it aloud. To my very special one, have a wonderful sweet sixteen. A folded twenty-dollar bill fell onto his lap. He held it up and nodded his thanks to her. Jeanette cheered silently, fists raised, and spun on her heel. She tottered back to the day room down the hall. Jean put the twenty back into the card and the card back into the envelope. He handed it to Brill behind the counter. She took it without looking up from her work and put it in its place on the desk. 
I didn't know it was your birthday. Every day. Ugh, why won't this thing ever work? Brill straight-armed her desk, pushing herself back. She wore new glasses, round like her loose curls and soft chin. Now every bit of her was round, except her irate eyes. It's like it hates me. I can't work on a single account. Any of these amber networks, they just like see me coming and lock up. Conspire to get me fired. That's dire. She laughed at his rhyme. And I'm tired. I hear you, sister. Well, clocking out. Don't let the bad man get you down. If it don't work, it don't work. He shrugged and headed back to the locker room for his helmet and gloves. The streets were full. The streets were always full on a Saturday night in the city, but this was different. These weren't tourists traipsing from restaurant to opera house. These people were locals, moving with purpose, their faces grim. And they were all going different places. The vibe was super unsettling, and Gene wanted no part of it. He didn't even want to know what all these people were getting up to until he'd gotten some dinner in him and a couple beers. But it was not to be. At Market Street, cops had set up a security checkpoint in the Polk Street intersection. Three squad cars and a paddy wagon, lights flashing. A half-dozen officers in tactical gear surrounded the checkpoint, pulling drivers out of traffic and pedestrians from the sidewalk for spot interrogations. One cop pointed at Gene as he rolled his bike across the intersection. His SFPD helmet held a camera and light. A carbine rested across his chest. He pointed at the ground in front of him. Park here. Gene, heart suddenly hammering, rolled to a stop and lifted his visor. What you got, sir? You, what are you, security guard? Gene always rode home in his uniform. The black bomber jacket was thick enough for mild San Francisco nights. The blue and gold state security badge on his sleeve had probably saved him from more trouble than he knew, but now it looked like it was getting him into trouble this time instead. You carry? You trained in sidearms? Uh, Gene couldn't help but flash on the memory of visiting his cousins outside Bakersfield when he was 15, smoking joints while they riddled a rusted sedan in the middle of nowhere with pistols and a shotgun. Kinda. Not licensed, no, sir. But you know how to shoot. Well, yes, sir. Sure, I know how to clear a jam safely, and I know what trigger discipline is. What's this all about? The officer beckoned toward Gene. You're coming with me. And into his vest mic. Got one here, on a red Kawasaki, sending him to you pronto. With a strong hand, he pushed Gene toward the circled squad cars. Another officer stepped out of their perimeter, waving toward him, Dread grew in Gene with every step. He rolled his bike toward the cop, yet he complied. At the center of the action, a police lieutenant in full combat gear shouted acronyms at a pair of subordinates. One relayed his commands over the radio while another hustled away. Leave the bike here. Stand there. The officer beside Gene pointed at a knot of others, all able-bodied men except for a single middle-aged woman. Gene reluctantly left his bike and stood with them. The lieutenant finally turned to them, his nameplate, Lieutenant Staten. I'm deputizing you all. You'll be given revolvers and sticks. Just do what you're told and we'll get through this night in one piece. A couple of the men groaned. One raised his hand. Sir, I'm National Guard. They'll probably want you to release me to them when they call. That's fine, soldier. When they call, I'm happy to do so. 
What's going on here? Why can't I get a straight answer? The woman spoke in a forceful voice. She was big, in jeans and a baseball cap, with the authority of a ranch foreman. Not sure yet, ma'am, but we're getting big crowds around banks and shopping centers, some really upset people out here. Didn't you hear? A man beside her said. Virus ate the money. All the money in the world, down to nothing. I heard a lot of cops called in sick today when they heard their entire payroll records had vanished. Lieutenant Staten held up his hand to forestall more chatter. That's just a rumor, sir. Look, a lot of people are looking after their own right now. We're a minority in the department, those who actually live here in SF. Now those who didn't or couldn't come in are doing what they can in their own communities, so we need all the help here we can get. But I ain't even from here. The woman shook her head in frustration. I'm from Amador. I just came into town for a meeting this morning. The lieutenant shrugged, handing her a baton. Bridges are jammed anyway, ma'am. Nobody's getting anywhere until the dust settles. You're stuck with us now. Chapter 34 The Safeway complex on Market at Church Street would be hard to defend, especially with their paltry numbers. The new deputies shared a concrete barricade with the forces outside Whole Foods across the wide thoroughfare facing downtown, but in every other direction they were on their own. Clear and secure. That was the only order the officer coordinating them shouted over and over. The Safeway was shut and locked, but a growing crowd in front of its doors posed an obvious threat. Clear and secure. They waded into the crowd, and someone screamed in fear. The deputies had their truncheons out, but didn't use them. The officer led them to the doors, the crowd giving way. Jean glimpsed the darkened store within, employees in their aprons staring nervously at them from cash registers. He wanted to wave to them, give them a thumbs up or something, but he didn't think that's what riot police did. This is an unlawful assemblage, the officer barked at the crowd through his face shield, making many of them rethink their decision to come here. Nobody's going hungry. Please disperse and go back home. Everything will be... And then his voice was drowned out by shouting. He lifted his PR-24 baton, all the deputies did. Clear and secure, the officer shouted again, wading into the crowd. Outraged screams filled the evening air, yet everyone fell back. They hurried away into the gloom. Jean was glad to see that nobody put up a fight, and none of the new deputies got carried away. They all looked as spooked as he was. He still didn't even know what the hell was going on. The deputies set up flimsy cordons with yellow tape and orange cones on both sides of Church Street a block up, but they just didn't have the manpower to control the entire intersection to the southwest. It was almost a plaza itself, with a number of entry points that couldn't easily be barricaded. They needed at least twice the number of people they had. Jean and the woman, Angela, were put in charge of the two lanes of Market Street heading downtown and its sidewalk. Two other deputies blocked the other lanes across the palm tree median. A forlorn rainbow banner hung from a tree. All the shops along the avenue were dark, many boarded up. Well, this is ridiculous. Angela paced the wide sidewalk back and forth. If any more than, like, six people show up, we can't do a thing. I know. Maybe if we could move some of these cars to block the way, uh, turn them into our barricades. 
but Jean was fairly certain he wasn't supposed to be breaking windows and hot-wiring anything yet. I could get my truck. Nobody's moving her. Where's it parked? Back the way we came, in a garage on mission. Yeah, that's over a mile away. I don't think they'll let you go. Oh, like anyone's paying attention. Come on, Jean. You know I don't belong here. He made a face. That sounds a lot like you're not coming back. She just looked at him, her breath caught in her throat. She wasn't used to being deceitful. He could tell that much. Her shoulders slumped. Look, I got a whole family to look after. This goddamn city's always falling apart anyway. I just need to get to the valley and I bet things will look better. If I skip the bridges and take side roads down the peninsula, I could probably make it. That's up to you, Angela. But it looks like it's now or never. Because here they come. A siren began to blare, as if announcing the approaching headlights. It was the old air raid sirens that Jean hadn't heard in years. From the dark, a number of cars rolled forward. Jean stood in the road with his arms out, barring them entry. The cars continued rolling forward at full speed. He realized they weren't going to stop. He pulled Angela out of the road as the cars sped past them into the Safeway parking lot. Chapter 33 It wasn't until sunset that Cade was able to make it back to Clarendon. He was tired, tired of fighting his way through panicked crowds and tired of yelling at functionaries and tired of the vinyl seat cover in this service van and the smell of stale cigarettes that permeated everything. He just wanted a shower and a change and a hot dinner. But he would be getting none of these things. The horseshoe drive at the entrance to the Lucia estate was full. Six or seven cars blocked access. He recognized many of the men and women standing in clusters, evidently sharing stories about how much Mr. Lucci currently owed them. They all waited here for Cade. So he kept driving, doubling back up the hillside above. He approached the alley that led to their back entrance. Negative. Several service people blocked the alley, too. They may not even be here for Mr. Lucci, but for the Tunisian shipping magnate next door. All the neighbors and their staffs on this billionaire's row must be in similar straits. Cade parked the van at the edge of Mount Sutro and climbed down through a private drive to the alley's far end. He snuck along it in the gloom like a common criminal until he was able to jump the neighbor's fence and slip into the side yard. From there, he punched a key code in. It beeped at him and flashed a red light, rejecting his code. Suddenly, sweat sheeted him. No, no, no. The estate couldn't lock him out. He was the one with all the keys. He tried the passcode again, and it beeped a second time. Taking a deep breath, he held the pound key down for six seconds, then tapped in the master code. The door beeped green. With a relieved curse, he stepped in and closed the door behind himself. He stiffened. Someone was in here with him. He smelled her perfume before he saw her. With a practiced sweep of his hand, he pulled the knife hidden in his belt and faced the shadowy figure. No, no, please. It was a woman, a young woman, her hair falling in loose ringlets. He knew her, the escort. You, what are you still doing here? Kay didn't put the knife away. He also had a slim automatic pistol held in a low-profile holster under his arm and a taser in his pocket, but he may not need them. I... I couldn't leave. I heard you talk about the trouble, so I checked. Then I got trapped. Please, sir. 
I have nowhere else to go. You've been in here all day. It was a servant's mudroom, where the gardeners cleaned their gear and washed their clothes before entering the house proper. I couldn't get back in. I didn't know the code, but I couldn't leave. Please, sir, I heard shouting. I know it's dangerous out there. It is. Cade stepped back to the door's knob. With his free hand, he opened it. He jabbed the knife at her. Now go. No, you can't make me. She shrank back into the corner, the spill of dim light from outside illuminating her frightened face. Cade studied her, trying to weigh any advantage she might bring. He didn't know how much Mr. Lucci liked her. Couldn't be much. She was just a one-night contract player. He wouldn't even remember her. Cade could find no profit in keeping her. Get out or I'll throw you out. She fell to her knees. Please, I live in Soho. I can't get back. All the flights are grounded. My phone stopped working and I don't even know where I am. I'm lost. I need your help. I don't know anyone on the whole West Coast except Mark. You will never see, mister. He reached for her. As he did so, a rising string of shouted curse words echoed around the corner from outside. Cade turned back to the door and closed it before they could be discovered. He locked it and tilted a spade under the doorknob to brace it. He studied the escort again. She was certainly Mr. Lucci's type, a handsome woman with a high forehead and prominent cheekbones. The boss cared less about their coloring or shape than this specific profile. That's what Cade had learned over the years. Mr. Lucci hardly even cared what they had between their ears, as long as the women he slept with followed this same basic silhouette. Grist for the therapist mill, no doubt. Was this his mommy? Charlotte, she told him again with a nervous smile. With one T. Stay here. I can't help you. Cade finally sheathed his knife and turned to the inner door. He blocked sight of the keypad with his hand and began to enter the master passcode. Wait. Charlotte plucked at his sleeve. He glared at her. Yes, you can. We can help each other. She leaned in and whispered urgently in his ear. She spoke volumes. Finally, Cade eased away from her grasp and beheld her with a hooded gaze. He nodded once, perfunctory, and finished his concealed passcode entry. The door beeped, but instead of stepping through, he held it open for her first. Chapter 32 The upstairs was as empty as the downstairs. Had Mr. Lucci abandoned San Francisco already? No, Cade found him in his bathrobe at his workstation in the rear of the East Suite, a traveling thermos of coffee at his side. Mr. Lucci worked on spreadsheets on four screens. There you are. Fucking finally, Cade! Sir, I apologize. Give me a contact point with the outside world. Anything. I got a plan. But we have to move now, before it's too late. Yes, sir. Where is everyone? Out on errands, the ones who showed up. Half of them are looking for you. Now tell me, what did you find? The feds can't help, sir. They're overwhelmed. With my credentials, I was able to talk with their communications team, but they have no access to the AACI logistics network. It's private, and they're only receiving spotty data from D.C. They say too many people didn't arrive for work today. Nothing I tried worked, not threats or bribes. That's impossible. There's whole protocols about something like this. Nuclear war and all that. Why aren't people still at their posts? They found out they weren't being paid. Fucking idiots. Mr. Lucci ignored the obvious barb in Cade's words. 
So what are they doing? Hiding at home? That doesn't get anybody anything. What about the military? Nobody I saw at the Fed building or in City Hall had any contact with the military. What does the Army care about money for? Their job is security. Mr. Lucci broke the keyboard with his fist. Their one fucking job. Yes, sir. Okay, what about blockchain? Sir? You mean Bitcoin and everything? Yeah, the virus didn't eat their logs, did it? Couldn't. Too widely distributed. Those records are still on a million computers worldwide. The only reason we can't send Bitcoin is because the networks are gone, but the records are still there. We've still got all our local databases, the snapshots. We still have the last snapshot we took here at midnight. I've been looking. He waved at his screens. There's close to a billion in holdings just on these accounts. Just a tiny fraction, but should be enough to get the ball rolling again. We can claw it all back with this amount. But it's going to be a legal battle. And political, of course. We're going to have to go hard at the state and federal level, I'm sure of it. Damn it, if we could just get on those Danish fucking satellites! Contact them again. Tell them we'll give them five million dollars in gold bars. I got that much here. If they don't go for that, see if they'll take the deed to one of the investment properties. Maybe those dumps in the Caribbean. Fuck. I'm sorry, sir. I'm unable to reach them any longer. Cade held up his useless phone. Mr. Lucci slapped it out of his hand. Stop telling me what you can't do, Cade. We only got today to sink or swim. You know this. What about Galston? Have we heard from him? He just lives down in Woodside, or is he still traveling? We have a board meeting scheduled for Monday, sir. He promised he'd be back for it. You don't know. What happened to Cade always being the smartest man in the room? Well, why don't you go find out? I need some allies here. Jesus, everyone is just so useless. Yes, sir. At once. Cade nodded and retreated from the suite. He closed the door and stood silently behind it for twenty seconds, doing nothing. Then he opened the door once again. Sir, I managed to get through to AACI. They've accepted your offer of five million dollars in gold bars. I can deliver it to one of their representatives downtown in the morning. Chapter 31 Siren Split the Night This is an announcement of the emergency alert system. Please stand by for the announcement. Sandra sat on the floor of the magazine aisle, leafing through a vogue. Right, San Francisco had all these sirens still left over from World War II. Every Tuesday at noon, they tested them. The first time she'd heard them, Vern pranked her by racing up to her station, shouting, Tsunami! Tsunami! She hadn't forgiven him for weeks. The voice changed. A recording began. This is Homeland Security Deputy Commissioner Evan Kovitz with an important announcement for all United States citizens. Please be assured we are doing all we can to restore normalcy and order. Our government structure remains intact. Services have been affected by this disruption, but efforts have begun to make sure that all communities are still provided with water, food, and shelter during this emergency. Please stay in your homes until further notice. The President will address the nation shortly. May the Lord protect us in our hour of need. Several others sat in this aisle with Sandra. Oh, thank God, Margie, the stock clerk said, crossing herself. I want to get home. He's a government official, Darren, the deli manager, complained. He can't mention God. 
That's illegal. Fucking San Francisco. Dusty worked in receiving. He scowled at Darren. That's all you got out of that. Then the cars roared into the parking lot. Sandra could only hear tires squealing and shouts of anger. She and a few others crept to the front of the aisle where they could see out the wall of windows. Headlights in the parking lot swept across their view, silhouetting running figures. Clarence, their middle-aged security guard, stood at the west entrance with one hand on the push bar and the other on his holstered sidearm. Several deputies outside barricaded the way. A tremendous crash sounded from the far side of the parking lot, and the deputies ran to it. Fire erupted from the crash, filling the east entrance with lurid orange light. Margie began loudly praying, gripping the hands of Philomena, the janitor. A growing altercation in the lot stopped the cars that still moved. Angry men from all walks of life shouted at each other. Loud, booming gunshots from beside their door made Sandra and many of the others scream in terror. Ron herded them upstairs to his office. As they went, they heard Clarence shouting at someone through the door. Then his pistol fired three times. Chapter 30 Sandra awoke to a clamor. She and twenty others were still in Ron's locked office, pressed together so there would be enough room for everyone to sit or lie down. She had fallen asleep with her back against the wall. Now a dozen phones all jangled and beeped at once. She clawed at her pocket and removed her phone. A cascade of text and voicemail and email notifications filled her screen. Her family had been trying to reach her all day. She called them back, only now seeing that it was 3.34 a.m. Drew answered. San? My God! Oh, Drew, Drew, you gotta get me out of here! His voice was rough and emotional. The whole world's gone crazy! I know! She had to raise her voice as the room filled with sudden chatter. There's been shootings for hours in front of the star like right out in front. There are like gangs here. I guess they were waiting for something like this, and here they are. Now we're all locked away. Please tell me you and Lindsay are safe. Too loud. She couldn't hear his answer. She cranked up the volume on her phone and jammed a finger into her other ear. What was that, Drew? I couldn't hear. But the phone had gone dead. The connection was lost. All the phones lost their connections as quickly as they'd gained them. Groans of anguish filled the office. Ian shouted over the top of them. We probably just overloaded the system. It's back, but we all tried to use it at once, so it crashed. Try texting, people. Less data transfer. They all fell to texting their loved ones. The office quieted again. Vern successfully opened a news app. Wow, he whistled. Holy smokes! This is all around the world. All the money in the world. Just gone. Gone? Dusty scowled at Vern. What do you mean, gone? What about my time card? Says here. Payroll records, pay scale information, uh, deeds and tax records. All of it just gone. Like it never existed. Dusty pushed himself to his feet. Well, then who's gonna pay me for being here? Huh, Ron? What am I even doing at work if it ain't for the paycheck? Now, hold on, Dusty. Ron's voice shook. He never looked so young. I, I ain't happy about it myself, but there's a bunch of people in this town who still need food. We just gotta sit tight. Everybody will get paid. Just keep track of your hours, and we'll figure this out once everything gets up and running again. Dusty 
punched a wall. This is bullshit. I didn't sign up to be shot at, and now you aren't even paying me? Fuck that. He stood and unlocked the door. What are you doing, Dusty? Where are you going? Ron's voice cracked. Everyone else just sat there and watched the drama unfold. Dusty's voice echoed up the stairwell. I'm hungry. If you ain't paying me, then I'm eating whatever the hell I want. Darren shouted. You stay out of my deli, Dusty. Well, Ron sought words. Well, at least write it down. Let's keep inventory straight, guys. Then their young manager sagged back from the door, and by his surrender, the others knew they were free to join Dusty and feed themselves. They stood and filed silently down the stairs. Chapter 29 Senley awoke Sunday morning in Spike's arms. The chubby girl snored and drooled like a toddler. So dear. Senley kissed her ear and pulled herself free. She hadn't slept so well in ages. How restorative. She stretched like a cat and looked out the window. The high-rise view was stunning. The grand institutions of Knob Hill surrounded her, Grace Cathedral and the Fairmont and Mark Hopkins. Last night, after she'd confessed that she'd been kicked out of her house and had nowhere to sleep, Spike had led her to this tower on Sacramento Street. The doorman had smiled upon seeing her. Miss? He had tipped his cap and opened the door for them, giving Senley an indulgent smile. They'd ridden up an elevator car of brass and mirrors. That was the first time Spike had kissed her. Senley saw her own eye in the mirror. She focused on only that as liquid warmth began to run through her. Their lovemaking had been more like desperate, intense cuddling. They'd fallen asleep early. Now Senley tried to make sense of the world. Reflexively, she consulted her phone. No signal, of course, but at some point in the night, it had downloaded 87 texts and 14 voicemails. She scrolled through them, answering her mother's anxious bewilderment with assurances that she was safe and not to worry, but Senley had no idea if her reply got sent. This flat was enormous. The entry hall was the size of Senley's entire apartment. Halls branched from it. One led past closed doors eventually to a kitchen. Senley realized how hungry she was, but she wasn't going to eat their food. She didn't even know who they were. Was Spike just house-sitting here? Was this one of those gigs, or was this her actual house? Senley looked in the fridge. It and the freezer were fully stocked. In pictures on a shelf, she saw a younger Spike and her laughing father, a bald man with bushy eyebrows in an expensive blazer. So this was her house. She was a little rich girl. She just played at being a punk barista. Well, better than playing at being a debutante. Senley shouldn't have said it aloud. She turned to find Spike watching her from the hall entrance with a cryptic smile. Chapter 28 The elevator stopped descending after just one floor. The door opened and a matron in a wheelchair was wheeled in by a middle-aged woman in a smock. The woman smiled at both Spike and Senley. The matron only glared. The silence thickened as the car continued down to the lobby. Spike held the door open as the woman smiled again, and the matron only glared more sharply at her. Spike's own smile widened. Stop! Right here! The matron had the woman pause at the security desk. 
her shaking hand held up like a squad leader's. The doorman from last night sat on the far side. He stood. Good morning, Mrs. Cordwain. Nothing good about it, Arthur. The radio won't play music, and my newspapers weren't delivered. Shoddy performance, that. Don't make me write a letter to Mr. Nancy. Yes, ma'am. Sorry, ma'am. The newspapers never arrived, and I've had trouble with the radio myself. I didn't ask. I said, fix it. Don't tell me your life story. Now, Fairman is arriving in a moment. Will I be able to get into my car, or will the drive be blocked by those rude delivery vans once again? Arthur stepped to the main door and opened it. The drive is clear, ma'am, and I see your car arriving now. I expect the newspapers at my door when I return, or Mr. Nancy will hear about it. After a dismissive flick of her hand, she directed the woman to roll her to the door. Arthur bowed as he held it open for her. The door closed. Arthur straightened his coat and turned to Spike. He smiled at her and nodded to Senley. Good morning, ladies. Spike high-fived him as she exited, but Senley hung back. You know, you don't have to put up with that anymore. Arthur's face grew a bit puzzled. Ah, that. No, Mrs. Cordwain is dealing with a lot of pain. Don't worry about me, miss. No, you don't have to do this anymore. Didn't you hear? Spike turned on the sidewalk outside and watched with narrowed eyes. The doorman's smile faltered. You mean the... the hacking job? Yes, the end of work, the end of money. Oh, I very much doubt that. Besides, what would I do with myself? Do you think many people will actually just stop working? Senley looked at Spike, who didn't seem happy with this conversation. Uh, we already have? Listen, the money isn't coming back. It can't. The networks are infected. Whenever they try to add more money to it, the virus will just eat that too. Your payroll? The record of your employment? Your pension? Poof. All gone. We have to take care of each other now. Dear Lord, what a mess. Come with us. Senley reached her hand out, but Arthur stepped back. Spike snared Senley by the elbow and pulled her away, waving at Arthur. Arthur smiled gently at Senley. I do take care of people. That's what I've always done. He bowed to Spike. Miss... Chapter 27 Alan had met so many people in such a short time he couldn't keep their names straight. They all had wild Burning Man names like Zebo and Fuckstick. Alan didn't think any of them were really taking this situation seriously. This was more like a freak show parade than anything. But they'd accepted him as one of their own and that was all that mattered. They'd even given him a scratchy Mexican blanket and put a sack of lentils in his backpack. When they asked his name, he said they should call him Akira. Nobody laughed, or even recognized it. Wrong crowd. There was something about walking in a group that made it easier. San Francisco seemed to have a march about something or other like every weekend, so these protesters were practiced at this. They all listened to music and danced along down the middle of Mission toward downtown, calling out to people hanging out of windows and walking down the sidewalk. They made it all the way to 30th Street, the skyscrapers shining in the distant north. Cars surrounded the gas station, snarling the road. Those closest to the pumps were shouting at each other. 
Alan's growing crew skirted around the trouble and headed toward Chavez. They shifted over to Valencia and passed the boarded-up shops and restaurants. At 15th Street, they encountered a barricade. Alan, near the front, watched a stringy kid with dreads leap onto the stacked building materials of the barricade. He flew back into the crowd with a yelp almost instantly. A short, fat man in a tactical jacket holding a shotgun poked his head up from the far side of the barricade. Fuck out of here! Trying to get shot? Most of them fell back, but a single hippie girl held her hands up and approached him. It's okay, brother. We're all on the same side now. The class war is over. We love you. Fuck the class war, you basic bitch. This is about my people. We got the pizza kitchen now, and we having ourselves a party. Party just for us. Nobody ever care about the projects. You know we're going to be the first ones sacrificed when this goes wrong. We all know it. I ain't your brother. If you don't live on 15th, get your ass out of here. He racked the shotgun. This is bullshit. A hipster in a red shirt and a Tolstoy beard stepped up beside the hippie girl. Violence is violence, dude. Control is control. You haven't gained any... Control is fucking control. Now get off my street before I control a slug through your forehead. Come on, come on, guys. Hands reached out and pulled the two others back. They turned right instead and got back on mission. But they were more subdued now. The parade atmosphere had transformed into something more like a march. People spoke in low, tense voices. The dancing had stopped. Near where the Skyway kept an intersection in permanent industrial shadow, a couple people on the edge of the group scaled a security fence and perched atop. One, a twenty-something tech worker in a nice hoodie and joggers, balanced on the edge and called out to everyone, Yo! Hey! Listen! Listen up! I used to live in this complex! He indicated the six-story residence tower behind him, transformed from its brick warehouse roots into a pile of brutalist lofts. I know for a fact that the owners are a Saudi hedge fund and that, at least as of last month, a full fifteen out of sixteen units were empty. They just used them for investments. Well, I say no more investments. No more investments. The crowd cheered, their energy recaptured. They chanted no more investments as he picked his way through the spikes at the top of the gate and dropped down on the far side. His buddy came with him. He opened the gate, letting others in, while the first guy picked up a decorative riverstone and hurled it through the glass door of the lobby. More cheering. People surged in over broken glass. Alan found himself swept along, from the ransacked security desk up the stairs down the antiseptic white halls. He had seen hospitals with more charm. What a lifeless place. No, no! Voices shouted from the end of the hall around the corner. This is the one where somebody lives. Leave him alone! But that was immediately protested by others, who insisted that anyone living here must be complicit and therefore open to eviction. A middle-aged woman opened the door to her loft and shook her finger at them. Now you just hold on there. This is my home. I'm on your side. I don't ever... Property owners are never on our side. A dude in a black hoodie lunged forward, but a few others held him back. Damn it, I grew up poor. I run a charity for at-risk youth. The woman's face darkened with rage. I'm not a bad guy. I'm just like you. Wealth distribution and everything. I'm all in favor of zero. I am. Then let us in. 
The dude in the black hoodie heaved forward again, but his friends held him back. I don't have anything. I'm struggling just like everyone else. You know how hard it is to live here. She clutched her fists and waved them at the crowd facing her with futile anger. Yeah, how hard? Another black hooded kid pushed forward and shoved her out of the way. As he stepped into her loft, she snared his arm and spun him. He used the spin to slap her hard. With a gasp, she fell back against the wall as a dozen people poured in. No, no, be careful of the cat, she's old! The woman, glasses askew, rushed back in, hands held up, pleading for mercy. That was too much for Alan. He skirted into one of the lofts whose door had been kicked off its hinges. There were maybe forty people inside, wandering the sparsely furnished rooms. The picture window looked out onto one of the concrete columns of the skyway, with a narrow alley disappearing behind. The kitchen featured black stone counters and a fancy stove and refrigerator. Up a skeletal stair to the balcony above, a single futon bed had been pressed against the wall under the skylight. So somebody had slept here once. Maybe on a quick trip or something. How weird. Three people already curled together on the futon, giggling. There was nothing in here. No food, no valuables. Nobody was looting anything. They just weren't leaving. Alan withdrew, back to the hall filled with laughing freaks and the lobby where a fat joint was passed around a circle. Alan got back to the street to find it mostly empty. The complex had absorbed the entire parade and stopped it in its tracks. Now what am I going to do? Screams drew his attention upward. A middle-aged man was in the window of a high-rise covered in blood, trying to throw himself out. Arms from within held him fast, keeping him from jumping. He just screamed and sobbed. It's gone! It's all gone! It's never coming back! As people congregated on the sidewalk below, piano music emerged from a nearby bar, and people happily sang show tunes. Alan couldn't imagine a less suitable soundtrack. Large groups congregated at the LGBT Center on Market. But Alan hung back. He didn't know if he'd be invited in. I mean, he said to himself, I'm not gay. And if they asked, he shrugged. Then he laughed at the absurdity of somehow being tested by a gay mafia. He walked a few more blocks. The Octavia off-ramp was an utter mess, snarled by abandoned cars. He picked his way through, feeling more and more hopeless about finding anything worthy on the far side of market heading toward Twin Peaks. I don't know. Marta, Lini so far away now. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so hungry. Well, at least there were supermarkets a couple blocks away. Chapter 26 Angela sat, leaning back against the retaining wall, holding a steaming cup of coffee. They had retreated from the indefensible intersection at church and market, and only guarded the Safeway parking lot now at its three entrances, with a single deputy watching the narrow bike lane behind the store. Gene sipped his own coffee and kept a lookout so Angela could get a break. A heavyset man, Linus, sat down beside her with a groan. Night's coming, Linus muttered. He cracked open a plastic container holding a rotisserie chicken. No shit, Angela snapped. And to judge by last night, that's when things get hectic. God, I hate this fucking town. Bunch of caged animals. Who would actually choose to live here? I mean, honestly. Linus chuckled. Yeah, nobody goes to New York anymore. It's too crowded, said Yogi Berra. <laughs> so why are you here? 
because my goddamn bank made me show up in person to sign three lousy pieces of paper and now my entire life has gone to hell. Yeah, lots of people here because of banks. Most work in them. His voice was reasonable, a little distant. He tore the chicken to bits with his fingers and slurped it down. But why would you stay? Angela shook her head in bewilderment. There's so much land out there. Nobody bumping into you all the time. Beautiful land. This is so damn suffocating. Oh, I know all about the land. I'm from Jefferson country up in Oregon near the Idaho border. Yeah, I spent my whole upbringing there. Jefferson country? Gene thought he must have missed a few chapters of high school history. Wait, what country's that? The new state of Jefferson. Angela sat up straighter. One of the only good things happening in this godforsaken country right now. My husband has really gotten involved in the movement. He goes out with one of our local leaders for rallies and speeches and such. Declare independence from California and Oregon and the feds. Make our own state on our own private ranches and private land. Stop getting abused by the criminals in Sacramento. Just get back to personal freedom. Gene took a sip. Never heard of this. Where is it? Well, we're still fighting over that. Some want it big, all the way to the Canada border, and others just want to keep it to the heartland, like Modoc County and a few spots in Oregon. Thus impoverishing themselves, Linus interrupted, cutting off all government services and dropping them below Mississippi in just about every economic index. Yeah, great idea, lady. I know all about the state of Jefferson. We don't care about your economic index. We got land. We got beef. We got water and crops and a whole bunch of quality people who can make anything we set our minds to. We don't need your brainwashing schools and doctors who are just big pharma reps and your post office that doesn't even work. We are fine as we are. Get your hands off. Angela stood. Our ranch has been in our family since 1877. Good for you. Linus didn't even look up. And what about those who don't have ranches? What are they going to do? Going to wish they had ranches. Look, my grandparents didn't have to worry about every wandering transient and illegal alien and wipe their asses for them. Their grandparents cleared the land and stocked it and developed it just like anybody can do. Not all this coddling full-grown adults like they're infants. When did that become expected of all of us? Probably around the time we realized we all live in the same country and we're all in this together. You know you sound like a plantation owner in Georgia right before the Civil War started, right? Angela scowled. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? It ain't any safer where you live. It's just more familiar. You got rampant car theft and break-ins from all the meth heads just like we do. It's an everywhere problem, not just a city thing. And just because you don't like urban lifestyles doesn't make them wrong. We got 240 acres of hills and pasture and forests, and all of it is good and peaceful just as God intended. But every single bad thing that ruins that life comes from over the horizon. Either bills and contracts from San Francisco, laws and regulations from Sacramento, or all the madness from D.C. You can keep it. That's all we're saying. You keep your tweakers and we'll take care of ours and you can just mind your own business from now on. Got it? Finally, Linus looked up at her. I was born a woman. On a ranch in Harney County, Oregon. Not our ranch, though. 
No, my family never had land of our own. We were poor, working in the mines and on the railroads. Oh, things were fine as long as I was a tomboy. But when I got too big and butch for the church ladies and scared off the old creeps trying to fondle me, there wasn't any place for me there. But I figure that's just fine with someone like you. An abomination like me doesn't deserve to have a ranch or a nice house or personal freedom, do I? No, you don't. Disgusting. Angela stalked off into the darkness. Jean shared a long look with Linus, whose jowls twitched once with anger. Then he settled back. So I got the fuck out of there as soon as I could and found people who'd love me. Isn't that... But Linus was cut off by the rising growl of diesel engines arriving from the north. Gene pulled himself to his feet as the intersection of Church and 14th Streets filled with light. Chapter 25 Gene rolled back the Ford F-250 truck he used as the security gate in his barricade. It belonged to one of the store workers trapped inside. He'd given Gene the keys once the deputy swore to look after it. Now he cleared the entrance so some kind of army troop transport could get in. Following it was a caravan of six Safeway delivery trucks, two 18-wheelers, and four big panel vans. The drivers each had soldiers in their passenger seats, the barrels of their rifles poking up. Lieutenant Staten marched across the parking lot toward them, meeting a short, blocky officer with a buzz cut in green fatigues. They shook hands firmly and took off their helmets to confer. The trucks all rolled in with another army transport at the rear, a soldier swiveling his machine gun up top. He nodded to Jean as they passed, and Jean closed the parking lot back up. Knots of people in the dark watched them from a distance. Listen up! A sergeant bellowed as Jean exited and locked the truck. Bravo and Charlie, secure perimeters! There and there! All you deputies, assemble! Right here! Two squads set out to man the parking lot entrances on this side. Gene couldn't help but feel a little possessive of his lost guard post, regardless of how dangerous it was and how much better those soldiers would be at defending it. Okay, team! The sergeant barked. Got a special new task for y'all. It's called unloading the fucking trucks. Think you can handle it? Groans answered him. As Gene walked toward the store, his phone buzzed. He lifted it. It was a text from Nibs on the workout thread they shared with Pargo. Where are you? Gene stopped, a smile splitting his anxious face. He hadn't realized how worried he'd been about the fool. He texted back, Nibs! Safeway on market! Pargo with you? Pargo replied, Yeah, me and the homie been all over town. Nibs texted, On our way to you, us and a whole crew. Wolfpack. Whole crew? Gene didn't like the sound of that. He didn't want to lie to his friends, but he also didn't want them getting shot by the army. He chose his words carefully. I'm doing security here, and there ain't no food left. Tell them. More food coming in, Pargo said. We heard all about it. It's coming right to you, boss. So we are too, Nibs said. Gene wanted to write an entire all-caps reply telling his dumb shit friends to stay away, but that's when Captain Ortega, a tall, angular man with dark eyes, walked across his field of view. You, off the phone and back to your post. All these new soldiers, they took my post, sir. Captain Ortega marched up to him, glaring, as if Gene had personally insulted him. 
No excuses, deputy. My sergeant will find something for you to do. Chapter 24 The glass shattered around midnight. Kate and Charlotte both sat up in bed at once. He put on the bedside light and retrieved his pistol. Charlotte, wearing one of Cade's T-shirts, called out from the window, There's lots of them. Jesus, running down the block. She turned the light back off. This just makes a target of ourselves. Crash! Crash! More windows shattered. The neighboring estate started blaring an alarm. Shouting and cheering came from the looters. Cade dressed as fast as he could, jamming his feet into shoes. He put his hand on the doorknob as glass shattered downstairs in their own building. He paused. Voices echoed from the great room below, crowing in anticipation of plunder. Cade cursed, locking the bedroom door instead and retreating from it. Charlotte, crouching in the far corner, hissed, Don't you stand there? Why don't you do something? Cade crept close, his face a mask of controlled fury. I was going to go to the security center downstairs. The estate is protected by a military-grade system. Metal shutters over the doors and windows. Sirens. But where is it? Why didn't it deploy? How did all those animals get in? Nothing works. I, I don't know. He scurried to the door and listened. I'll tell you how. Someone used the code and deactivated the whole thing. I bet it's that fucking Camille. She always stealing from us. Quick. Grab that side. Cade directed Charlotte to lift the far side of his workstation. It was a wide desk made from cherry wood with iron fittings weighing over 200 pounds. They heaved and strained and pushed it right up against the door. Cade placed his office chair at an oblique angle to the door, the pistol in his lap. He glanced at his phone. It appeared to be working. Text Mr. Lucci, he ordered. The text dialog box opened. Barricade your door, comma, sir, period. Arm yourself. He tapped send. A few moments later, as the rising clamor from downstairs turned into shouted conflicts over loot, his phone buzzed in his hand and a text reply appeared from the boss. Already did. Cade laughed darkly and lifted the pistol. It was a thirty-two AC Beretta, the only gun James Bond ever preferred to the Walther PPK. It fit his hand so well. He glanced at Charlotte as steps stormed up the stairs outside. She was in the corner behind him, clutching pillows, furiously texting on her phone. From the crack under the door, the looter's lights wheeled across the hall. Here they came. The unlocked doors on this level banged open. Cries rang out from the plunderers. Then his bedroom door was tried. The lock was enough to deter the first ones. They just shook the knob and moved on to easier pickings. But soon there were no more open doors, only locked ones, and the looters returned. Low voices spoke on the far side. Thumps and kicks drummed against it, testing it. But Cade's bedroom door was a restored antique Vermont farmhouse door as hard as steel plate. Or at least that's what the antiques dealer had told him. Boom! A great weight cracked against the door. Wicked laughs and cheers coaxed whoever had thrown themselves against it to repeat it. Boom! The frame of the door splintered near the top. Cade raised the pistol and shot through the door. In the noise, it could hardly be heard, so he shot again, aiming dead center. What the fuck? What the fuck? A voice on the far side grunted. Then someone else bellowed about blood, and they all ran from the door. Cade lowered the pistol, its barrel issuing a thin stream of smoke. Charlotte gaped at him in disbelief at what he'd done. They had a brief respite. 
And then the scene repeated itself over and over through the remainder of the night. Packs of roving thieves came upon the ransacked mansions and picked at them, and they all had to try the locked door. Several bands were so persistent that Cade perforated the door fourteen times and reloaded twice. During quiet moments, he packed his valuables in a gym bag with changes of clothing and an extra pair of shoes. Their phones only worked intermittently. At one point during the night, Charlotte said, Ugh, this emergency alert says that apart from a few exceptions, they're distributing the national food and medicine stockpile and suspending interstate commerce. What does that even mean? Nothing good. Have you contacted your employers? She answered that with sullen silence. Cade spun on her, pistol pointed at the blue shadow of her forehead. Answer the question. Charlotte's eyes flared with outrage, then flickered. Not yet. I mean, I'd rather not. They were already shit about paying me. Now they don't have anything to pay me with. And they probably have bigger problems now than collecting background details on the assets of Mark Lucci. Cade dropped the pistol and sneered at her. Corporate espionage was supposed to be so much safer than the other seedier versions of the trade. And yet, look at you now. Charlotte only glared at Cade. Chapter 23 After they dragged the workstation away from the door, Cade unlocked it and peered out into the dim hall. Papers littered the floor. He smelled smoke. A surprising amount of blood pooled in front of the door. He stepped over it. Behind him, the door creaked. Charlotte stood in the bedroom entrance, disheveled, but her eyes were deadly. So were Cade's. After a shared, resolute glance, she closed and locked the door again. Cade went to the head of the stair and looked down. Houseplants and cushions littered the steps. He made a quick search of the empty rooms, then went to the security center off the kitchen. Its narrow steel door was scratched and dented. He punched in the master password and the door slid open. Inside, he ordered the house security system to close the metal shutters over every door and window. But he kept the alarms off, and he didn't bother notifying his own security team or the authorities. It was clear Billionaire's Row had been abandoned. He closed the security center door and crossed the kitchen, finding Mr. Lucci on the stairs, gripping a golf club. A driver. He nodded at Cade. I knew it was safe to come out when the shutters finally came down. I knew it was you. What a waste! Fifteen million for a security system to button us up tight, but instead I lose all my family heirlooms to the fucking rabble. It isn't safe to stay here, sir. Yeah, no shit, Cade. We're leaving. I've been on the phone all night. When it worked, at least. Finally got in touch with some of the main players. A few of them are in better shape than we are, but all that means is they know how truly fucked the whole financial system is. Anything that smelled remotely of money got eaten by this damn zero virus and nobody can get rid of it. Come on, follow me. We gotta get our traveling funds before we hit the road. But first see if there's any food left. I'm starving. And with that, Mr. Lucci headed downstairs. It was obvious that nothing remained in either kitchen or the pantries. They had been scoured clean. Cade followed Mr. Lucci down the basement stairs into a low service room and its back concrete retaining wall. Mr. Lucci was just swinging the false wall open, this section of concrete fake but crafted to match the real thing. 
He laughed at Cade. Bet you didn't know about this one, did you? Cade hadn't. No, sir. Wheels within wheels, secrets within secrets. Not even Cade knows them all. Mr. Lucci hitched up his slacks and groaned as he knelt before the steel plate and keypad of a safe. He punched in a long sequence and swung a lever down, then used it to pull the safe's door open. Not a ton in here, just some paperwork and a couple extra passports. There was a seminar at Davos about bug-out bags a few years back, and I had this whole thing put in. Let's see, uh, we'll take the gold and documents. Also, this Turkish vase is worth 16 million... The bulbous head of the driver connected with the base of Mark Lucci's skull. Without a sound, he pitched forward into the safe. Cade regarded the body, his mind blank. He removed the heavy gold bars. With a foot, he pushed the dead man's legs further inside. Then he closed the safe. At the top of the stairs leading up to the kitchen, Charlotte waited. She blocked his way. Only after he showed her the gold bars did she let him pass. He said, Now you will tell me where his bunker is. She laughed bitterly. No way, Kate. I memorized the directions, then wiped them from my phone. I'll tell you step by step, but no more. You aren't getting rid of me that easy. Clever, as I would do in your place. Cade retrieved his gym bag and dropped the gold within. He hauled it to the garage. Come on, get in. We need to stop somewhere for food before we leave town. Thanks for listening to Zero, The End of Money. Make sure to tune in next week to find out what happens to all the money here on The Unuseful Hour.